Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce my guest for today, I want to just say a few words about what's happening now around the world with the pandemic. I know numbers are on the rise and it is very scary and also very difficult for a lot of people on a personal level. I know that there's someone in my family in the hospital right now, and I know others have people in the hospital or people who they've already lost to this pandemic and others who got COVID and now seem to be on the mend, and I'm very happy for them and for you. But I want to make sure that as we approach this holiday season, we want to be able to make sure that we are choosing safety over being with friends and family. At least that's my feeling about it. But also know that isolation is very difficult and very scary for some. And it's a time to reach out to others if you're feeling the need or if you feel like it's a need of yours to reach out to other people or have them reach out to you. Be sure to be in touch. Let people know what you need. And think about people also who are living alone, people who have recently incurred a loss, people who have some health issues and might be nervous about being on their own. This is a time of year, not only because it's the holiday season, but because, again, the numbers are on the rise, which is making people nervous, to really let people know you're there and to let people know that you need to be reminded that they are there if that's what you need. And also, if you're finding it hard to come up with ideas of things to do to entertain yourselves or to connect with people, just ask a teenager. They have come up with very creative ways to get together, to entertain each other, watching movies online together, putting videos together, setting up Zoom calls in all sorts of ways with all sorts of friends. So yeah, ask a kid in your neighborhood what they do for fun during the pandemic. You really will get some great ideas. But I think it's important that you want to do this not just for fun, but because it's so important to not spend the whole day in quiet, if that's not your usual way, so that you feel somehow disconnected from everyone or forgotten about. It's time to visit people in nursing homes, even if you're standing outside and waving through the window and bring a whiteboard and write down the message that you want to be able to send to them. Or it's time to send people some electronics, send them an iPad or whatever else so that you can send them videos, you can send them messages, you can communicate with them face to face, at least electronically. But even though We can't really have as much human touch as we need, and we can't hug each other and hold each other as much as we would like. I think the human touch can be conveyed in other ways. So it's time to call people rather than text them. It's time to sing someone a song. It's time to write someone a card, an actual card with a stamp. And you put it in the mail and they see your handwriting. And that's really wonderful and better than an email. Human touch is also conveyed in sending people home-cooked meals or baked goods and having them contact you when they're eating them so that you can eat together, even if it's online. Human touch is also doing some artwork, sending someone something you've done with your own hands. It's also a good time to rescue an animal. There are many who need to be rescued, but just make sure that while it's a wonderful way to have company during a pandemic, only rescue an animal if you plan to keep it after the pandemic ends. It's also time to send people just the messages, the things that you've been thinking about them, the positive things that you've been thinking about them that you haven't had a chance to say. It's time to say them. It's also good to remember that there are many ways to connect online 
with support systems and support groups. That's why I have maintained my online former cult member support group every other Wednesday night. And there are other people who want to be able to connect who have had similar experiences. You might feel like your experiences are absolutely unique from another person's. And they might be in some ways. But what I've noticed is that when you get a group of people together, there is always common ground. And so I think there's a way for you to connect with people even when you don't realize it. The human experience sometimes has a lot of overlap. So your experience will be understood by many. So if you need other ideas, just ask people for other ideas of ways to connect. And if you need help, reach out. And I wish you all a safe holiday season. And now for our guest today, we have Erin Aquarian. She is an artist and a musician living in Portland, Oregon. Around the age of 26, she began to explore spirituality, particularly witchcraft, to try to heal herself and make her life better. In 2012, she became involved with a mystery school for four years, which she'll talk about. Though she thought this school was helping her become her true self, living a life of meaning and purpose, the school was rife with dysfunctional dynamics, which deepened the wounds she showed up with and caused new ones she is now trying to heal from. Currently, Erin is recovering from eight years of being manipulated, gaslit, and misled by the people involved in this community and also others she has met and worked with in various spirituality and healing modalities. She's transitioning into being back in real school, community college, not a cult, she says, focusing more on her work as an artist, and now only working with licensed and trained professionals regarding her healing, mental health, and life choices. She's fascinated by cults and their impact, and if you want to know more about Erin, her art, and her journey, you can visit her at erinaquarian.com. Here's Erin now. Okay, welcome, Erin, to the show. I'm so happy to have you on. I know that you contacted me, and it was really intriguing to hear about the school you had gone to and how it kind of reminded me that things can sound different, but ultimately be the same. The control and the manipulation and so many of the details wind up being the same and falling under the same headings, even if, again, the, the language is different. So I want to be able to get back to that. Uh, but in the meantime, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah. Um, and thanks for having me on your podcast has been a huge, huge help for me um, as I've been recovering. My name is Erin Aquarian. And I'm just going to say that my process of recovery from cult spirituality is is really just kind of leaving me in a transition right now. And so I don't really know how to talk about myself um, because I'm really just deprogramming. You know, we're going to touch on a couple of subjects today, but what I wanted to be able to uh, talk about is what drew you into this particular school and what are some particular experiences, certain moments that really stuck, you know, the things that really made an impact on you or the things that were the most confusing or disturbing or shaming or what, you know, all the things that kind of float to the top in terms of the things that uh, linger. And then what helped you leave and what's been happening since you mm -hmm. left? I, I wanted also, if it's okay with you to start with, when I was looking up the Blue Iris Mystery School online and I got to this part of the website that you've probably seen already, which is how it began. Um, so I just wanted to read a little bit from that just to orient people. Okay, so here it says on the website, so I'm just quoting the website, it all started when in 2004, after 25 years of working as an herbalist with the Green Magical Gates, 
Colette received the information to drop the work she was doing with the green and enter into mystery for a while. She expected that would only be a few weeks. Instead, Colette started a magic class series in 2005, unsure where it was going to go or if she would ever offer it again. It unfolded, however, into a four-year program that Colette describes as being blue magic, rooted in mystery and expansion. And then um, just, I'm skipping over the next paragraph to get to more about colors. Uh, currently, the magical tone of the school has been shifting from blue origins to a gold. This new honey-like energy feels like a call to a viewpoint that is more reflective and sees through the mature sunset eyes of wisdom. Colette's hope is that we use this energy to better understand the connection between us and the earth as we continue to learn magical skills. And then there was one other part that really caught my attention because I think it would catch other people's attention. It's a word used in the plural as opposed to the singular that I thought was interesting. The approach, the heading says, dedicated to healing the worlds. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm just wondering about, you know, that kind of imagery, the colors, and also what do they mean by worlds in plural? Part of how we would begin each class was to cast a circle and call the energies, call um, forward the elements and the energies that we wanted to work with. And this is part of a a magical practice or like a, a witch practice that is not unique to this school, but we would say, you know, when the circle was cast, the circle is cast. We are between the worlds and what happens between the worlds affects all the worlds. And, you know, as you're reading all that stuff to me now, I'm like, this is loaded language. But when I was first exposed to it, it was just intriguing and something that I wanted to know more about. And the place that I was at um, when I was first drawn to the school, you know, I was in my late 20s, about to turn 30, really not in a place in my life where I felt like I knew who I was or what I was doing and that I was feeling the pressure like to figure it out and to get my shit together because I I didn't have a lot of support for my adult life and figuring it out. And I had dropped out of college and never like really figured out what I wanted to do. Turns out that I just have a lot of complex trauma that I wasn't getting the right kind of help for. And this was a thing that kind of crossed my path. And it, it set something off in my mind the first time I heard about the school. Like I remember where I was when I first heard about it. And so I've been thinking about that a lot as I'm, I'm reflecting and kind of looking at my story and trying to write it down and put the pieces together as to what was going on for me that um, this seemed like the answer to my my problems. Right. And I, I didn't start going to the school for three or four years after I first heard about it, but um, there was just a lot of stuff going on in my personal life and I was just going through like a vulnerable time and looking for an answer, you know, and what I've learned now about these high control groups is that they, you know, project that they have that if you're like in the wrong place in the wrong time, you know, you can take the bait. So, and it really just brought me down a path of real dysfunction and real um dysregulation okay the terms that you're using that you've done a lot of research uh into all of this and and i think it's interesting you have the experience when i'm reading part of the website that a lot of people have after they've gotten out of a high demand group or one where they felt that they were not being treated in an honest way um or that the messages were kind of slippery like you know they the group itself could say a lot of things and then not kind of follow through and not provide you with those things at the end of the day same thing with 
being in a controlling relationship, you know, sometimes when you hear that former partner talk a good line, you say, oh yeah, I heard that many times before. And I get, I get why they're talking that way and what impact. And I remember the impact it had on me. So I'm wondering about when you were saying that you didn't have support in your adult life. And so that prompted you to be more drawn, even though it took a few years, right? To be more drawn to something like this. What questions were you hoping it would answer? What kind of guidance were you hoping or did they promise that they would give you? Well, it's really interesting because they didn't promise to give us anything. And I remember you have to get into the school by having an interview with the founder of the school. That's sort of like the first obedience test, I think, to jump through to become a part of this thing. So I, I, I've been reflecting on my, that experience and realizing that the interview was more about her getting information about me than me getting information about her and the school and what we were going to be doing. And I remember just, I know now from having done a lot of healing work and therapy that, you know, I was projecting my like childhood trauma like onto this older woman because I have a lot of trauma with with my family of origin so um and didn't have a a familial support system um growing up or as an adult so I just did not have a healthy sense of what are healthy adult relationships and so I got into that that dynamic a lot with my teachers and with the various healers that I worked with while I was in that community because they had their in-community practitioners that we were encouraged to work with. So I started working with the school therapist early on, right at the beginning, because I was really going to that school because I wanted to heal. I wanted to work on my issues. I knew that I had issues. And that I was becoming aware of healing and spirituality mm-hmm. and really going full throttle with that and thinking that I had found a safe space and community that was going to support that because they speak all of the therapeutic language buzzwords that um, it's not hard <laughs> for groups to to do that lip service, you know, I'm, I'm looking at all the Nexium stuff and, and finding that I relate to a lot of, of it because mm-hmm. just not uh, the ESP stuff where, you know, they're having these like amazing transformative experiences, like um, that seems so mind blowing, you know, but when you're really in it and in those relationship dynamics, there's so much toxicity playing out. Right. Okay. You mentioned about your childhood and childhood trauma. You can talk about it, not talk about it, whatever you're comfortable with. But to the degree that it impacted you, you know, I'm just curious what it left you with and what it left you needing. Well, my parents divorced when I was pretty young, like eight or nine, you know, child of the 80s and 90s. It's not a huge shock. I grew up with a fairly dysfunctional family. Um, My mom is a survivor of pretty severe trauma and poverty. I'm not so sure about my dad, but I think he also experienced a fair amount of repressive trauma in his upbringing. And so, you know, I grew up in that and my mom was pretty abusive psychologically and physically. And my dad passed away suddenly when I was 12. And I had a lot of family members on my dad's side kind of die one after the other by the time I was 12. So it was like, sort of like my family just blew up. And then I was very isolated, um, living with my mom who was passing down, you know, her unresolved trauma onto me through being abusive. So it was just a very isolated and painful childhood that I had. And so my relationship started to become like really dysfunctional, like with my social life and, you know, dating, like when I was pretty young, you know, I developed coping mechanisms like anyone does. 
So I started like partying and like drinking and doing drugs. And um, then I stopped doing that when I was in my early 20s because I started to get really sick every time that I would drink. And so I got sober pretty young when most of my friends were continuing like on that path. And then I started becoming interested in like self-help and spirituality and healing. So that's sort of like in a nutshell, a very like small nutshell, kind of how I sum up the trauma that led to me seeking healing in these alternative to the mainstream spaces because I had a real distrust of the mainstream. And also I didn't have insurance or resources to get myself therapy. I didn't really trust therapy as a modality at the time because I hadn't grown up with good experiences. But basically like by the time I got to adulthood and I'm 38 now, you know, being in your late twenties or thirties, like starts to feel like you're a real adult. I didn't have any healthy adults around me to show me what that looks like to be taking care of yourself and making good decisions that are building a foundation for your future. And instead I got all wrapped up with these adults who were training me to magically think about reality you know, I'm coming out of eight years of magical thinking and, and just what that does to your life. I'm like, maybe there's people out there that that gives, provides good results, but I don't know. Yeah. I think, you know, there's so much that affects if it's going to be a positive or negative experience or just neutral, that it just doesn't do anything. Yeah. So if it's positive, it's usually because you maintain, I think, a say in what works for you, what doesn't, how you want to approach it, how much you want to do it. And also for some people, they get to a place where they incorporate Eastern and Western and magical and taking Tylenol, you know, like they find a way to, to develop the balance and to have the freedom to do so. I think it's a really important piece of this. When the freedom is taken away, when you're told how to achieve these goals, and that if you're not achieving them, it's because you didn't do it right, or you didn't do it enough, or you need to take another class, you know, that's when you start going down this sort of rabbit hole and you, I think, lose a connection with you. And that's very disorienting. And so I think with some of these schools, with people who are in charge, they what they have in mind is empowering you and other schools have in mind empowering themselves through the guise of empowering you and so i'm wondering what you think it was in this school uh i think that it was a guise of empowering students and training them with magical skills the language of the school never made sense to me while I was in it. <laughs> and when I left, I would notice myself starting to kind of like tense up when I would hear the language being spoken. Mm. And um, even just hearing you read the website, which I have looked at several times, like it just kind of induces this, like, I want to barf in my mouth a little bit because I'm so upset with them that they're still choosing to kind of exist in that reality when for the past year and a half, two years, former students have been trying to create a dialogue around the problems and the spiritual bypass that has happened um, when we have addressed problems over the years and that I can see it all now. I couldn't really see it then when I was in it, but I could always feel that something wasn't right. But for a long time, I just thought that it was me and that it was my stuff and that we were really encouraged to think that way too, um, which I have noticed is a pattern in a lot of healing spaces, energy work spaces that you know, if you have a problem that that's your stuff, um, that's your issue to work on. It doesn't have anything to do with the teacher or the modality or the group dynamics. Like that's you and your stuff. I've, I've heard the Nexium 
people talk about that um, similarity as well. Victim blaming, gaslighting, sort of to not ever take responsibility for managing that conflicts arise. Right. I think also you're thinking you're paying for this. You're paying to blame yourself for everything and be blamed for everything. And where do these teachers, these guides come into play where maybe some of it is on them if I'm feeling worse? Because if you're paying for a service, like if you're like you're bringing your car into a mechanic and you leave and it's still making the same noise, in fact, even more noise. And they say, well, that's on you. Well, no, it's so not because you're paying for somebody who says they have this expertise. And then part of what they're saying is I'm not willing to take responsibility. And it's it's a shame because especially if you're looking for that kind of parental figure, the really healing parental figure is somebody who says that's on me when it is, or I'm sorry, but it takes responsibility. And that can be really a lovely and empowering thing to have happen. It sounds like that didn't happen here. Well, in this school, it was very much set up like a, a traditional cult. They had an inner circle kind of surrounding the main teacher and her partner who has since been kicked out of the school because a ton of people came out over the last year and a half talking about, you know, inappropriate things that had happened in working with her on like a mentorship basis. And so the school has been in turmoil since one person came out to critique what was happening. And then more people finally felt brave enough to talk about it. But their narrative was about, well, they're doing these initiations with people who are more involved with them and that's its own you know process of breaking down someone's ego and like speeding up their karma um and what i've heard from people who were in that process with them is just truly insane um i wasn't involved at that level because they actually rejected me when i tried to get closer and I'm very thankful now that I, I wasn't chosen to be um, brought in closer but um, there's this narrative in the school kind of like like we're doing all this like really hard work um, healing and it's so hard and you knew it would be hard and transformation is not easy you know so there's this real kind of like boot camp mentality that seemed to develop um, I remembered listening to an episode of your podcast. I forget who the guest was, but he was talking about fervor. And that really kind of like clicked for what what we were experiencing. Like a lot of this like heightened agitation. They, they even called it magical agitation, that the magic would be pushing on us. So we should pay attention to what that might look like. This whole, I mean, language that they invented to kind of explain to us what our experience was when really we were just having nervous system signals that this is not safe. Exactly right. And there is another term given for it. It's sort of diagnosed away. And, but really, it should be absolutely paid attention to. And also because of what it does to the body and what it does to the mind, it's quite exhausting and disorienting. Uh, uh, the guest who you're referring to is Yuval Laor, who is great. And he studies all about fervor and awe and what that does to the brain and how it, it can sometimes be wonderful experiences and sometimes be completely overwhelming experiences and what that does to what we think of things. You know, if we will start to think that it might be magical because it feels that way to our system. I'm wondering if you can talk about the leader and what she was like and also some of these inappropriate things that people were reporting. Well, there's the founder who that was, you were reading her writing. Mm -hmm. And then there was her other, you know, they had a long time history of being in, in witch circles together for 20 or 30 years or, or something. They were kind of like a, a polarizing pair of personalities because one of them was very like dynamic and charismatic and, you know, 
in what I'm learning about narcissism, I, I identify that character as the, the overt narcissist and the other teacher as a covert narcissist, um, where she was more sensitive and wishy-washy and, you know, appeared to care about everybody and trying to like kind of manage the emotional dynamics of the group. They were really attractive to me at the time because I had never met elder women that appeared to be in their power and kind of asserting their agency and not living by these mainstream kind of like patriarchal standards for for women. So they were introducing me to these concepts like self-worth self-worth and personal power and personal authority. And so it really kind of like triggered this off for me, I guess. And in what I'm learning now is that in dysfunctional and like coercive dynamics, you're only really allowed to fawn over these people. Like you're not allowed to question or challenge them. So it wasn't even a question that we would question. And you didn't want to. Because you saw and heard the narrative that they had about outsiders and people who weren't in this group. There was a superiority um, attitude that it was never said outright. But I found myself, um, especially in the first year or two, kind of feeling like I had found the way, the truth and the light. And I can't believe that not everybody is doing this. You know, but that really started to dissipate when my life started destabilizing in in my second year in the school and then my life just continued to get more and more chaotic and I couldn't figure out why and you know I'm still kind of putting the pieces together but I think under the influence of these extremely narcissistic personalities that set up a space where we had to had to be fawning over them all the time and worshiping them for what they were giving to us. And then the real kind of reality check when you start to realize that there are no boundaries keeping people safe here. They are crossing lines, doing things they're not qualified to do, advising people in all kinds of ways that they're not qualified to give advice. They're not therapists. They're not financial advisors, but they are stepping into that role with people because that's the nature of this group. We are dependent on them for everything. And it's just, there was no space to talk about that, you know? So even, even today I've, I've only been able to talk about it with, you know, two or three of my former, you know, classmates from, from this group, because the majority of the people who were in it are, are not having these conversations. When you were talking about this dysregulation and your life feeling chaotic, uh, what I was writing down here was the fundamental and really primally hitting contradictions. So Here, if what attracted you to these women was this empowered way of being in the world and being strong and feeling capable, uh, being independent, and at the same time, in what they were teaching you and how they were teaching you to be, you were becoming uh, less empowered, less independent, you were becoming clearly more dependent. If you're saying that not only were they giving you therapeutic advice, but financial advice, I mean, that's becoming very, that's, that is crossing over a lot of boundaries, but that means that in every facet of your life, you went to them and they advised you probably not well. And also if coming out of a a childhood system where there was abuse, you want to know that when you say stop or when you say help or whatever, you're going to be heard. Your voice needs to matter. And in this situation, if you couldn't question and if you couldn't say no, and if you knew you were going to be talked poorly about, if you spoke up, you're further losing your voice. And so, but it's all within this 
kind of package of you're getting empowered, but your psyche, I think, knows that the opposite is happening. And it's very hard to make sense of any of that. Because here, we're going to empower you. Don't make a decision without asking us first. You know (laughs) what? Uh, And we want you to be able to feel strong, but don't ever question us and don't ever uh, say anything negative. I'm sorry. You know, and if you don't have, I think, the distance from it to be able to see what's happening and the contradictions, I think you'll just feel like you're going crazy. Well, and you think that it's you and that all of this chaos is part of your spiritual growth. And that's a real common narrative that I have seen present in a lot of the, you know, healing spaces that I have been involved with. And I understand that, you know, this culture does not help people heal. It's not like resources and therapy are accessible. You know, we do what we can with self-help books. Um, I mean, that's kind of like how I got into all of this stuff was reading some self-help books when I was 26 and going through a bad breakup and realizing, you know, that I do want to heal and I, you know, I do want to like improve my quality of life and relationships and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we're living in like a messed up world. The outer dynamics of the culture, I think, are the reason why we have cults in the first place. You know, what we're doing in these spaces, there's not enough critical evaluation happening. There seems to be that pattern where you're not allowed to think critically about anything and and talk about it when it's not working um, and, and explore, you know, like, can we really, does this really work? Yeah. And why, why is that such a problem? You know, I think that my takeaway from this experience is just that this is so much more common than I realized. It blows my mind to listen to your podcast and, uh, and to just kind of be learning more about various cults and the patterns that play out, mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. Ovis Witness or Nexium, or obscure mystery school in Portland, Oregon, or a multi-level marketing company. And I really feel like this is a, a cultural moment where we're just like looking at the inherent dysfunction of the civilization that we live in mm-hmm. and ask, why are we playing out this story again and again? Mm-hmm. Like, why do we create spaces to just traumatize people over and over again and and play out these really painful attachment traumas. It's so gross. And it's so hurtful if you are, like most people who are drawn, um, and I think it's usually like a narcissistic personality that's, that's in the leadership position. Mm-hmm. And we're like moths to a flame, you know, just being kind of drawn um, into these dynamics again and again. And just for for people that are in the soup of it and in the fog of it, I think just knowing that, I think talking about these experiences is really important and drawing attention to what are the conditions that create these conditions, mm. I think are important conversations for us to be having. And that's one thing that I really liked about your podcast, because you're talking about like the broader, you know, cultural context that these Mm -hmm. situations are happening inside of. Because I think if we ever want to live in a world where we're not just abusing each other um, and creating oppressive realities that traumatize people again and again, we're going to have to really look at these experiences are more the norm than the exception. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so then I think what happens too, when you're talking about kind of what leads up to this and why our world right now and so much going on is really fertile ground for a lot of these people who will come in and want to take advantage of people's pain and people's sense of kind of um, 
insecurity, emotional, financial, all of it, um, and fears that that it's so cruel to think about that there are some groups that will do that. It also, for a lot of people, they will say, I really went in wanting to heal so much. It didn't heal any of it. And in fact, it left me with more things that I needed to heal. And, and that's when it's really just, it's just mean. It's just really mean to do to people and so selfish. Uh, so I'm wondering what's helped you. I know it's interesting when you're saying cult hopping helped. I mean, I understand your point that, you know, you can get involved with other people and other things and not have your whole world be that particular group. Okay. So what else has helped since you've gotten out? It's really interesting because at this point, I'm realizing that the things that I thought were helping weren't actually helping because I was in similar dysfunctional like and narcissistic dynamics um that whole cult experience seemed to have really like activated me getting involved um with intense narcissistic personalities Mm -hmm. um and like playing out that story but what has helped was like the three friends that were in this group you know that. I have talked to every day sometimes Mm -hmm. um, and stayed in touch with because I don't really have many friends from this group. It's like everybody that I was so closely involved with and we were so um, like in it together, but Mm -hmm. you are completely discarded when you no longer participate or if you question or if you bring up any challenge that shines a light on what we're not talking about here Mm -hmm. so I could not have come out of this if I didn't have like these two or three friends that I talked to about like just unpacking the experience you know we are talking on the phone or, or texting regularly um sometimes every day So that has been everything. And then just sharing resources. Like one of those friends sent me your podcast and then I binge listened to it, you know, over a couple months this summer um, when I was really getting out of a relationship that was really bad for me and just going through all of these big transitions because everything that I built under the influence of the school kind of like couldn't withstand reality so um, there's been a lot of transition yeah hearing people talk about the recovery process a uh, stronger after yeah which I also found out about through your podcast um I've I've been in their recovery coaching and just continuing to withdraw from people that gaslight me and tell me that my reality is not real and working with a therapist at a slow pace, that was very different than all of the healing that I had thought where you have this like razzle dazzle kind of experience in a healing session where it's like, wow, we moved so much energy. And like, you know, like I saw the root of this pattern, you know, and we cleared it. Mm-hmm. But really, is that working? You know, so I guess and letting myself think critically again and realize that that's one of my talents that I've had since I was very little child. Um, and that my my critical thinker was really like just smashed in this in this group and in spirituality, um, which I think is really unfortunate. When I say spirituality, I just mean like the seeking that I've been doing as a part of trying to reclaim that part of my being. Right. Okay. So, I mean, as we finish up, I think, you know, you, you bring up a really good point about the intensity of an experience seeming like the validity of the experience. And they're not necessarily equal. And in fact, one is a lot less organic than the other and going through therapy in a slower pace 
where you get to take in information, synthesize it, ask questions about it, uh, determine if it's right or wrong, have kind of a buy-in all along the way and have your power upheld and your decision-making and your voice upheld throughout the process, which only happens if you're given the space and the time to have those thoughts and to share those thoughts, then it's a lot healthier. It's like the people who, when they get attracted to people who um, wind up being just high drama, it's because they're often the shiniest thing in the room. And they've had to learn to set their antenna towards the thing that might be a little less shiny, but because they're not you know, if someone's sort of burning like a flame and like you're talking a moth to a flame where you, you, you are going to get singed and, and it's going to burn out. And then what are you going to be left with? And so a lot of people I talked to said that they've had to get used to what they would normally have seen as boring, that it's actually healthy. Yeah. And that's okay. And it's okay to have something that feels okay and predictable and it's fine. There's so many of these groups that will on purpose have things only at sunrise or with big, you know, bonfires or, you know, with music that is really intense. They're trying to enhance the experience to make it seem more of something. Mm -hmm. And also I think to activate certain parts of the brain that then deactivate the other parts, like the judgment and the thinking and the, hmm, I don't know the critical eye, you know, let's see if this is a good idea. Um, but people get caught up and it feels really good. It's that states that a lot of these groups yeah, yeah. sort of try to induce to mm-hmm. really sell that we are having these powerful, potent, transformative experiences. Mm-hmm. And it really does cloud your judgment and common sense. So, right. So... For you to impart that wisdom on the the listeners now, what's a good cautionary tale? If someone wants to get involved in something, whether it's a relationship or a group, what should they be watching out for just in terms of people, the the group manufacturing those kinds of experiences? I mean, I'm I'm going through a a phase of trust no one right now because I feel like I have had no boundaries. And so I don't know what to say. I don't trust anything right now Mm -hmm. um, other than licensed ethical practitioners who have credentials. I think that I, I think I heard you talking about this on one of your recent episodes, you know, that just because somebody has a nice looking website with some resonant copy doesn't mean that they're qualified to support you and that if if you've experienced trauma you should work with a trauma therapist i i feel like i'm in emotional preschool right now because that's what therapy feels like and that's fine i don't need to have these grandiose like revelations um like I thought I was having when I would get a tarot reading or an energy clearing session or a download about this or that or blah, 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 whatever. It's like, I'm learning how to like be present with my emotional experience, which I'm learning like is very hard for me to do because of all this life lifelong experience of complex trauma before the cult and after. So I don't believe in like what people sell anymore. Um, I I think that this industry of, of healing and self-help is, should be questioned. It's not regulated. And um, I think that there is so much problematic stuff being sold And, um, I mean, it's a billion dollar industry. So I was in that industry trying to be a tarot reader and life coach, and I'm taking space from that to see if this is really ethical. And if, if I really have the skills to support people in their life, and I would hope that any practitioner would do the same. I'm really glad that you're 
now on a on a path of getting help and support that feels healthy. I understand you not wanting to trust anyone. I understand the pendulum swing to the opposite extreme. That's often how it is so that you can remain safe. You keep your armor on until you figure out a way to assess a person, assess a situation, hold on to your power, to what you know to be true, no matter the situation. And and to not be an open book unless the person has earned the right to have you open the book for them to see. Because, you know, the, the idea of being an open book is an interesting one. As you're talking about it, I'm thinking of the imagery of that, that when you are an open book to the wrong person, they will have a very bad reaction when you close the book. And they'll blame you for getting in the way of your spiritual development or whatever, just because they want to keep being, they want to keep having access to your story. And also, I think if you're an open book with the wrong people, they rewrite your story. And so I, yeah, I understand you wanting to keep it closed for a while and just offering a page here and there to the people who have proven to you they can be trusted and that they're going to be um, careful with your sensitive information and they're going to be honored by you sharing any of it. And so I thank you for sharing some of your story, opening the book for us to see a couple little pages and chapters. And I'm I'm glad that you're sharing with us also about a school that a lot of people haven't heard of because there are thousands of them. And it doesn't matter if there are a couple hundred people or thousands of people in these groups. Just hearing, I think it's going to be very impactful for the listeners hearing that you can get involved in something that's a school for a few years and it's going to take years to get over it because it's so multi-layered and it's sometimes it, it takes a while just to understand what happened and why you were feeling like you were suddenly dysregulated and your whole life and mind were in chaos. So thank you again. And I wish you the best of luck in your healing and in doing good things in the world and, but doing things that you want to do that are safe for you and knowing how to decipher that. It's a really good skill to learn. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for the service that you provide. My pleasure. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. One more thing before you go. When Aaron was talking about trying to find answers to life's questions and how it prompted her to go searching in many different places for those answers, Not only, I think, was it to find out more about herself and life in general, but I think also to try to understand how life could be so fleeting. She talked about incurring many losses, one after the other after the other in short succession. And as I've mentioned in the past, sometimes when people ask me what kind of people get involved in cults or restrictive environments of any sort, I will say that it's not only a what question, but a when question. Sometimes it's about your openness and your need at that time. Maybe it was right after a significant loss, after receiving a scary diagnosis, after the breakup of a relationship or leaving home for the first time that you were recruited or saw an ad for a particular group. The timing of the recruitment plays a pivotal role. And people will often ask why. Why did this happen to them? Why did this happen to me? Why is it still happening to me? And for many, that's an existential question that's left lingering in the air and might cause them to feel some anxiety, but they know it'll go unanswered. But for other people, they want the answer. And sometimes groups will be happy to give you that answer. 
it's reassuring and calming when you get the answer to those questions. It somehow helps you make sense of things that didn't make sense before. And because that feeling can be so calming and satisfying, we don't often question if the answer is correct because we're just happy to have one at all. I'm thinking about loss, and it's also true that when people get involved in cultic groups after incurring a loss, they will find that after they leave the group, they're not only dealing with the losses of the group and with what that group was supposed to be in their lives, but the rush of the feeling of loss comes right back because it wasn't really dealt with. It was just pushed to the side. And so I know if you've gone into a group suffering with something, unfortunately, you will probably be suffering again with it when you leave. And that's why it's important to seek support. When you leave a particular cultic group or a restrictive environment, it's also an opportunity, though. It's an opportunity to shed what I think is a very weighty and cumbersome style of thinking, where everything has a reason and everything has a meaning. But of course, the reason that you're given and the meaning that is ascribed to it are decided upon by the person leading the group. The idea that there are no accidents, that the reason you got sick or the reason someone got sick or died was because of something you did wrong or they did wrong, either in this life or in a past life, or you aren't having success in your life because you need to be more committed to the teachings and the philosophy in the group, So here's the formula to follow. Recommit yourself to this group and you will have success and health. And that works for a lot of people because truth is the human condition dictates that it's hard for us to not know. It's hard for us to not know how to answer the big questions. It's hard for things to not have a supernatural reason at times. It's hard, just like in the title of the book, for bad things to happen to good people. It's confusing and overwhelming, but I want to let you know that the pursuit of these answers is one that has been with us throughout history. And you just want to be cautious about who you are open to to give you the answer. You don't want to get the answer to all life's questions from someone who tells you they are the only one who has the answer, from someone who has a very glossy website and really doesn't seem like very much in person, from someone who has a private plane that was paid for by their members, someone who feels they're above the law, someone who is inappropriate and crosses boundaries with people of all ages, and from someone who won't let you research anything about the group, anything about them, before getting involved or having to adhere to everything they tell you. And you don't want the source of your answers to be someone who has you sign a non-disclosure agreement before you get involved. Someone who calls himself Vanguard and is famous for his all-night volleyball sessions and then some. Having the questions is normal. Getting the answers from people who are trustworthy is imperative. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. 
Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.